This podcast is brought to you by Northern Trust Wealth Management. What is the why that drives today's most successful business leaders? Tune in each month to the Road to Why podcast by the Northern Trust Institute, where host Eric Shapea dives deeper with entrepreneurs on their life's work, legacy, and the greater meaning of it all. Find the Road to Why where you listen to your favorite podcasts. Today on the podcast, we're going to talk about cops, fact, and fiction with Colin Channer, the author of a new book of poetry that deals with police life, and Edward Conlon, the author of the memoir Blue Blood and the novel Red on Red. This is WSJ Speakeasy, your source for entertainment, pop culture, celebrity, and the arts. Hey, this is Christopher John Farley, a senior editor at the Wall Street Journal. Today, my guest is Edward Conlon. Edward is a Harvard graduate. He's the author of the memoir Blue Blood and also of the novel Red on Red. He's a former officer in the NYPD. Edward, thanks a lot for talking to the Wall Street Journal. Thanks for having me. You know, one reason why I was so interested in talking to you because, of course, you know, there's always talk about cops in movies and TV and books and the news, and you always wonder what the reality is of the police experience really is. And you're someone who has written a memoir about your experience working for the NYPD. You've written a book, a novel about police work called Red on Red. So you're someone who really has a handle on separating fact from fiction. And with all the talk recently about uh, police shootings, the shooting of police in Dallas and Baton Rouge, and, um, of course, uh, news, a constant stream of news reports of police shooting and killing unarmed black suspects. I want to talk to you to get your perspective on it. So, so what is your feeling when you hear stories of mass shootings of cops in Dallas and Baton Rouge? What was your reaction when you heard those news stories as someone who worked as a police officer? Uh, complete horror and, and, and disbelief. It's really, really unprecedented. I mean, Violence and deaths are, are, are part of the risks of the, the job for most cops, but it really isn't a daily reality. But you very recently wrote an essay saying that you don't believe there's actually a war on cops. Why did you say that, and what's your perspective on that? Well, the, 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 that's right. Uh, uh, the, the risk of death uh, is there. Uh, statistically, it's, it's pretty remote, uh, you know, even saying after that, after recent events in, in Baton Rouge or Dallas. Uh, but uh, the main point of the argument I, I, I made in the idea of a war on cops is that uh, even in uh, these African-American neighborhoods where the flashpoints happen, uh, the overwhelming majority, well, I mean, the large majority of, of, of people there want us and need us there. And that was my experience, uh, particularly when I was walking a beat in the housing projects at the South Bronx. You know, I was talking to someone the other day um, uh, uh, who was a black officer in a police department and who's no longer working for a police department, but he was driving with his family, his wife and his kids, and he was stopped by a police officer, a white police officer, who came to the car with his, his, his gun drawn. And he's telling me about the fear that he felt, even though he was a former officer, in that situation. Um, and, I, I was, and, of course, it made me think of the, the constant stream of stories we see in recent days of cops killing unarmed 
black people. When you see those kinds of stories, uh, what goes through your mind as someone who had to you know, deal with people of all races on the beat um, throughout your career? Well, the first thing is that you know stories like that black officers are unfortunately far too common. Uh, the second thing is whenever uh, you read about a police shooting, uh, and you know it's 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 not as if they are they're uh, they're on the on the back pages anymore. You really have to look very very closely and see if the circumstance match you know the narrative of the last two years. And you know, I did. I was looking at Castile and in 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 uh, Saint Paul and, and and Sterling and Baton Rouge, seem to be the same story, but they really aren't. Uh, you know, they were two very different guys, and and you know, a lot remains to be found out about what happened to Castile because the you know the very visceral video that came out of it happened after the fact. I mean, it's emotional impact is great it's evidence the evidence it provides is really not much whereas sterling in 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 baton rouge is is one that uh you know sad as it is to see what i see is a a guy a career criminal with a gun fighting cops and while i'm sad it ended that way i can i can imagine a, a a lot of ways it could have ended worse so they're very different stories for me in a way that they aren't for for a lot of the people who who saw that video. Do you talk to some of your former police colleagues about what's going on? What do police say about these kinds of things in their private moments with their friends and buddies over a beer? Oh, they think it's crazy. Uh, They think it's crazy. Uh, uh, You know, there really doesn't seem to be a separation between the truly atrocious and, and, and criminal acts uh, like those in North Charleston where a guy is shot in the back running away from a cop and the really complex, ugly, uh, but probably justified in the very narrow legal sense uh, of events like those that happened out in Sterling in, in Baton Rouge. And when you you know, in in the uh, the protest in, in in Dallas that preceded the the mass murder of cops there, and the crowd was chanting "Hands up, don't shoot," which is just you know a discredited story from Ferguson. So uh, you know the concerns are always there, but you know, the the activists, the Black Lives Matter activists, I don't think that uh, uh, there's a widespread belief among cops that there's an honest effort to point things out and, and, and make things better. Hands up, don't shoot, is, is not a cry uh, for people who are interested in finding out the facts. We know that fact didn't happen. But what I find interesting is that, of course, there's been lots of talk about the fact that one thing that's changed in the relationship between the police and the public are cell phones. People can, uh, can film their encounters with police. When people see these encounters, on their on their browsers, you can have a very visceral reaction, and really feel uh, um, you know before they can get other supporting facts, really have an, uh, develop an emotional response to what's happening. Uh, do you think that that's helped to contribute to what seems to be a breakdown in the relationship between the police and the public, especially among um, uh, minority communities? 
Yeah, no, it's it's, it's had an enormous impact, and in in uh, many senses, it's it's been great because you know, video is a standard of documentary proof that had been lacking in, in uh, you know previous history. Uh, you know, it's it's always he said he said she said, and a cop's argument, you know, versus you know, witness criminal, civilian, whoever it is, it's, 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 it's always has to be taken in context. But having that video, um, you know, changes, changes the story. So it can prove in a certain narrow sense what happened what ha- or what didn't, depending what's inside the frame and when that record button was first pushed. Uh, but because it has such a, you know, uh, an immediate impact, and it's only what you see. You're not seeing what happened before. You're not seeing what happened outside the frame. It can have a distorting uh, uh, effect on um, on a particular incident. I mean, there was a guy last year in New York City. There was a uh, a guy who was running around hitting people in the head with a hammer, and the last person he hit was a cop, and he snuck up behind her and bashed her in the head, and her partner uh, shot him. Now, two witnesses, and these were sincere people, or uh, they they were just passers-by who had no hostility towards the police. They gave witness statements saying that one said that this guy was running away when he was shot, and the other one said, you know, no, he was already in handcuffs when he was shot. Now, fortunately, there was video of the incident that said nothing of the kind happened. And one of these uh, uh, Witnesses later came out and said that she just had to believe that was the case because she'd seen so many of these abusive police videos. And what I find also interesting is not just the videos that, that are recorded in reality, but the videos we see and images we see in movies and the accounts we read in books. So you're someone who's you know, traded in both fact with your memoir, Blue Blood, and also in fiction with your novel, Red on Red. And whenever I watch police procedurals and also when I read you know, some of uh, some passages in Red on Red, um, you know, police work is often seen as sort of messy. It can get it can get really aggressive. Uh, you know, we, we turn on Law and Order, you see, you know, sometimes, not so much in Law and Order, but some other police procedures, you see cops, you know, throwing suspects into the wall. Uh, how does how does that affect the the image people have out there of cops when, they're, when they're, they see so many images of, of bad police work? And and perhaps that's not the reality of it, or maybe it is. I'm wondering. Want to get yeah, your, t- your take I, on yeah, it? Yeah, no, I've thrown people against the wall, but uh, hopefully I had my reasons. Uh, it doesn't happen that often. I mean, an accurate uh, uh, movie or TV show about about detectives would show them typing and talking on the phone most of the time, <laughs> and most people wouldn't want to see it um, because it's it can be incredibly exciting and sometimes really dangerous work. It's it it's just a natural uh, subject uh, for drama, <clears throat> but obviously, uh, in some some uh, some movies, TVs, books uh, are more realistic than others. Uh, but it's uh, <laughs> it's not there to tell the truth about a job anymore. The hospital drama is to, to educate the audience about medicine. Now, now to many people. The, the phrase "Black Lives Matter" seems to be a very simple statement of fact, but it's become sort of a political football. And one thing I wanted to ask you, as someone who, who knows cops, who worked as a cop, uh, what do um, policemen say about Black Lives Matter, the movement, 
um, in their private moments when they're when they're just talking among themselves? Well, I I I I believe, and I think you can guess. I think all the white cops, or lots of the white cops, think it's you know dishonest and and dangerous. I mean, a lot of surveys the last couple of years have shown. Uh, uh, race relations uh, trending in the wrong way, the wrong direction in the United States, and and uh, you know the inability to acknowledge that there can be a two sides of a story, and 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 even uh, two different perspectives on, on an incident. Uh, you know, the, the the Justice Department wrote two reports on on Ferguson. One said that the the officer was not didn't commit a crime in killing Darren Brown. The other one said that it was pretty much the only wrong thing they didn't do because the practice of policing and and Ferguson was 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 predatory and abusive and mercenary. So to see that there both of those stories are true, or rather that Michael Brown wasn't murdered, but you know the 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 way things were done in Ferguson was unacceptable. Uh, you know, uh, you didn't hear a lot that about both sides of the argument. So I, I don't think they they see them as, as as honest brokers. And again, the problem with the movement is that there's no them. I mean, it's loose and, and diffused, and it's not a, a group with that has membership cards. And the other the other side is is, is you know, are they contributing uh, to? Uh, making uh, making you know police community relations better, and yeah. I don't think so. Well, we're get, with that, we're going to take a break. We'll be right back with more from Edward Conlon. I'm Veronica Dagger, and I want to retire rich. How about you? Then listen to the Watching Your Wealth podcast. We'll help you get there. For more information, check us out at wsj.com slash podcast and find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and now Spotify. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously. This is WSJ Speakeasy, your source for entertainment, pop culture, celebrity, and the arts. We're talking to Edward Conlon. He's the author of Blue Blood, a memoir of his time working as a member of the NYPD. And also, he's the author of Red on Red, a novel. That's all for talking to the Wall Street Journal. Thanks for having me. So, uh... You know, I think I went to Harvard around the same time you did. I didn't know you there. And I'm wondering, uh, this is something you dealt with in Blue Blood, but uh, I don't know a single other student there that went into becoming a, um, a police officer. Tell me what was the main thing that got you involved in, in, in that profession. Well, uh, I always wanted to write but didn't know how to make a living at it. And, and really through this odd series of, of coincidences, my first job after college was at a small social service agency called Consult- Consultants for Criminal Justice Alternatives. And I, it was in Brooklyn, and what I'd do is I'd meet people who were either indicted or convicted of crimes and try and make a case that, you know, there was something better than, than jail for these people. So, I mean, my first... A client was a 15-year-old kid who'd done three robberies, but he was still a bright, good kid who had a bunch of really sort of terrible things happen in his life at the same time. Um, and there was he was very salvageable, salvageable to say the least. And, and I, you know, I thought this particular school might be a better place for them than two to six. And I lost the the case, uh, uh, and the kid actually did turn out pretty 
great in the end. I stayed in touch with him. But that, you know, it brought me into a world where I didn't really expect to be, even though I, you know, come from a police family and had a number of police friends. But uh, it, it was it was just really exciting and, and, and really satisfying to do it. And, you know, I was doing some writing uh, at the time. I did some freelance uh, journalism. And, uh, uh, but uh, in the end, I decided that I, I needed a steady job, you know, a paycheck that came every other Thursday, whether I earned it or not, uh, and, and decided to give the police department a try. Now, um, you've written Blue Blood, a memoir. You've written Red on Red, a novel. Do you see your work as helping to demystify what the cops are about, or is it something else? Well, the nonfiction certainly. Uh, I mean, the fiction, you know, maybe almost the reverse. I mean, I, I you know, I try to uh, make these stories, the, the novel, this novel, and the last one, uh, realistic. But the, the main point of, of a novel is, is to entertain. And what do we do going forward? I mean, obviously, the relations between the police and minority communities are frayed. People see these videos of unarmed black men being hurt or shot or killed, and it worries them, it concerns them, it angers them. They they see um, news accounts of cops being shot in the street, and that frightens people as well. What do we do going forward to sort of bring people together to build more understanding between police and the communities they serve? Well, be patient and uh, recognize that that. While the fear is is often real, uh, it's often not realistic. In fact, it usually isn't. And bear in mind that despite what's happening on TV and even now in in funeral parlors in in Baton Rouge, uh, the worst possible, excuse me, the worst possible things have in fact happened, but in the rest of the country, every day, uh, um, cops are out there because people are calling them. They need their help, and they're hopefully getting it. So, what are you working on next? Uh, do you have a new the novel, a new novel in the work? It works, I have, a yeah, new memoir. I have, I have a I have a novel that I finished. Uh, that's that's uh, it is a novel, but it's based on a policewoman I knew who was working from uh, the late fifties through the seventies. Does anything that's going on today in the news um, spark your imagination in terms of writing something about it? Um, <laughs> it, 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 I, I try not to use my imagination when I when I watch the news. It, mm-hmm. It's a different muscle that uh, you need to work at. You need to to study, to analyze, to find the background and the context, uh, and and. And and try and see what happened. Uh, it, it'll be some time in the future before you. I think I can make any sense of, of, of what's happening now and, and, and see what fictional use I can put it to. Well, great. Well, we've been talking to Edward Conlon. He is the author of Blue Blood, a memoir, and the author of Red on Red, and he's working on something new that we hope to see sometime soon. Thanks, for, right. ta- thanks a lot for talking to the Wall Street Journal. Thanks for having me. Take care. So that was Edward Conlon, the author of Blue Blood and Red on Red. And now we're going to talk to Colin Channer, the author of the new book of poetry, Providential, that deals with police life. After this. 
Hi, this is Kevin Sintemong. This is Beth Cracklauer. Check us out on the Off-Duty Podcast. We talk about food, cocktails, all of the finer things in life. Check us out at wsj.com slash podcast. And become a subscriber on iTunes. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously. This is WSJ Speakeasy, your source for entertainment, pop culture, celebrity, and the arts. This is Christopher John Farley, a senior editor at the Wall Street Journal. Today my guest is Colin Channer. He's the author of a number of books, including Waiting in Vain and the new collection of poetry, Providential. He's also one of the founders of the Calabash uh, Book Festival in Jamaica, one of the one of the best book festivals in the world. I've been to it myself, been been a guest at it and covered it. So, Colin, thanks a lot for talking to the Wall Street Journal. Hey, it's great to be here. Okay, the reason we had you on today is I want to talk about your collection of poetry, Providential, because it's a fascinating work. It's a collection of poetry that deals with police life, um, uh, policing, families of police, um, uh, the law and violence. Uh, and with all that's been going on in the news in America, about uh, policing, police violence, police brutality, the shooting of police. I figured you'd be a good person to talk to about what's happening. So uh, when you, you're the son of a cop. So what went through your mind when you heard about the mass shootings of cops in Dallas and Baton Rouge? Well, I, think I was very disturbed by the killing. And, uh, but I also understand how people can feel frustrated and do unbelievably cruel things. So I was very hurt and disturbed by it. What made you... As a son of a cop, but also as a human being. And, uh, you know, obviously you, you were born in Jamaica. You live in the United States now. Do you see a difference between the relationship of cops in America versus the relationship that people in Jamaica have with, their, with cops? Well, yes, and it's very fascinating, that difference, because in Jamaica, you're dealing with a population that is largely black, 95% black. Uh, but the police in Jamaica have an incredible history of violence. And so in Jamaica, there is a lot of police violence against black bodies. And in the U.S., where uh, black people are not a majority, there is a lot, incredible amount of violence against uh, black bodies. So I think it's what really unites them is that the people who experience a great amount of the violence are black. Uh, Jamaica also has a national police force. In the United States, uh, policing operates on the town level. And so in in Jamaica, you can have uh, policy that's nationwide. In the U.S., it's much more complicated. And so I think part of the challenge is you never know going from one town to the next what the cops might be like, what their policies might be like. Um, but I must say that police violence in Jamaica has always been more intense and um, has actually been more chronic than it has been in the U.S. In fact, so much of reggae is about police violence. Every time you hear the word Babylon in a reggae song, you're hearing about the, the sort of Western capitalist imperial system, but you're also hearing about the police because in Jamaica the police are seen as primary agents of state violence. And of course, you know, the, the opposition to police is, is a theme in reggae and in a lot of Jamaican um, art. I mean, you think of everything from, you know, I Shot the Sheriff to the movie The, the Harder They Come. Uh, so what made you decide 
to write a book that deals with uh, the theme of police when so much of Jamaican art seems to be in opposition to uh, what police are about? Well, because as an artist, you're always interested in the complexity of situations. And when I said, when I read uh, anthropologist uh, Deborah Thomas's book, Exceptional Violence, which looked at the history of violence in Jamaica, um, I became really fascinated by police violence. And, you know, you know, the reggae artist doesn't have room to see both sides of the policing equation because the reggae artist is most often from the social class that is abused most by police. Um, I was interested in not just that awful things happen, but why they happen. And so in looking at that, I found myself looking at my own family um, and looking at what it means to be a policeman, a policewoman, in a place where the police themselves are historical inheritors of a nation's history of violence through slavery and its aftermath. Now, of course, in recent days and weeks and months, we've been you know, uh, almost assaulted by, uh, by video after video of unarmed black men being killed by police and sparking controversy about the context, what's happening, was the shooting justified, unjustified, why does this keep happening? It's something that has become a sad ritual where you, you almost can't get all the facts straight because there's so many of these videos coming in. As someone who, um, you know, uh, you know um, again, has uh, roots in police culture, what kind of effect has, have these videos had on you and what are some of your thoughts when you see them? the videos confirm a few things. One of them is that um, when, 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 when policemen kill unarmed citizens, I think the policemen are operating the way many criminals do, which is they have a calculus. How easy will it be to get away with this? The fact that policemen have a judgment call to make and are given leeway to say, well, I thought I was in danger, lets them off the hook, right? And so seeing these shootings just confirmed that for me. It also did something else, which is to remind me yet again that, you know, this country's promise of fairness and equality under the law is a principle that, isn't always carried out on the level at which most people experience the justice system and the police system. Um, so, you know, I keep thinking of what it means to have, a, have police forces around the country that have so much discretion in how they discharge violence and how the discharge of that violence is so racialized. Look, I haven't heard many stories of black policemen killing unarmed white people. I've heard of black policemen killing unarmed black people. I've heard of white policemen killing unarmed black people. But it's very rare to hear of black policemen killing unarmed white people. That says something about 
how the lives of black people are valued. But also, I think it also says something about the black policeman's awareness that if he kills somebody who's white, he's crossing a very big line. But that if he kills somebody who's black, mm, that's within the realm of normal. It, it, it's a sad indictment. Now, of course, you know, again, you're born in Jamaica, live in the U.S., you sort of have an international perspective. And, of course, Jamaica someplace has given birth to various kind of black consciousness movements by Marcus Garvey and others. What are your feelings when you hear about Black Lives Matter and, 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 and the, the, um, the controversies some project on them? Well, I think, you know, when I hear about Black Lives Matter and I hear about the controversy about the name, you know, you know it's, it's, it's to me an example of how unwilling we are to put ourselves in the shoes of people who are not like us. For example, nobody, you know, has a huge argument about Coke is it. You know, is Coke everything? No. But there's always, uh, there's too often a different standard for things that are black. The, black li- the term Black Lives Matter is, it's, it's, uh, it's advertising speak. It's not, it's not something to be looked at as the title of an academic book. It's something that has a short emotional punch. And the fact is, if, if people felt that the lives of black people were valued in the same way that the lives of other people um, were, they wouldn't have to make the point. It's that black lives matter as well. But we've lived in a country where for so long... Um, the lives of black people didn't seem to count. Here's a question I would like to ask, and I would like people to ask themselves. When was that golden age where black people in America were treated fairly under the law? When was that golden era when black people in America never felt a sense of physical fear from the police? When is that golden era? We don't want to ask that question because it's a hard one for us to answer. Because if, if we're not black and we think about it and we go, well, mm, it, it wasn't the 1960s, it wasn't the 1950s, it wasn't Reconstruction, it wasn't slavery, then it leaves us with never. Once we're at never, then the question becomes why. And once the question becomes why, then the answer will be uncomfortable for America. We don't want to deal with it because it upsets and undermines our self-mythologizing of a country that is the greatest country in the world, and that is a country that was constructed on great principles for all. But we know, you know it's principles for some, not all. Now, your new book is called Providential. It's a collection of poems that explores you know, family and policing and loss and violence. Oh, how do you feel about the way in which cops are often portrayed in pop culture and police procedurals and books and, and, and in other media? Well, I think, well, I mean, there's, I mean, pop culture is a very, is a vast universe. Um, I think that, um, you know, the, the hero cop, especially the detective, is something that we're all familiar with. You know, I think that cops actually get um, in in the main uh, kind of fair treatment. Now, there's some categories where cops are often villains, such as um, 
in a lot of music um, by young black men, whether it's reggae, whether it's dancehall, whether it's hip-hop, because, you know, this, this is music made by people who come from a category that's often abused by police. But if you read, you know, the great, you know, detective stories, I mean, in detective stories, the cops are the heroes in the main, you know. Um, but again, you know, being a policeman or policewoman is not an easy job. Um, people put their lives on the line every day. However, um, with that responsibility um, should come better training. And I think part of the challenge of policing in America is that, one, America has a, a tremendous history of violence, one. And the second is that the training of police personnel happens on the level of municipalities, and a lot of the training is simply bad. And I don't think that uh, most um, most police organizations um, take the idea of diversity very seriously, and not just diversity in hiring, but diversity in 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 who is valued, whether it is um, people who are not white, whether it's people who are not straight, whether it's people who are not fully able-bodied. I don't think that um, policemen are, and policewomen are given enough training in that regard. And as such, they're, the biases that they come into the force with remain with them. And once that's there, and once a, a, a cop has so much discretion uh, to use violence, and when there's so much protection of the, the cop under the law, it leads to situations in which a policeman will take the calculus and kill people, knowing that mm, the burden of proof in, 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 in the case of, um, of a cop is different than from a regular citizen. Now, of course, the name of your book is Providential, a collection of poems. Is there a poem that you could read to us, give us a, a little taste, a little flavor of what the book is about? Sure. I'd like to read a very short poem from a sequence called Tentative Definitions on law. Say it loud, law. The sound will tell you it's slack and stretchy. Listen to the punch in shot. Clean. And that's Colin Channer reading from his book, Providential, a collection of poems that deals with family and policing and loss and violence. Colin, that's all for talking to the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much, Chris. And that's it for the show. Today, our guests were Colin Channer, the author of the book of poetry, Providential, that deals with police life, and Edward Conlon, who is the author of the memoir, Blue Blood, and the novel, Red on Red. Thanks for listening. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously.